I remember coming back from Ohio State and Justin Fields had had a fantastic workout. But on the way back, we're on we're on the plane. Uh, Jed was nice enough to get us a plane, and Kyle's on his iPad with that iPad pencil, and he's just grinding over there. And finally, he said, "Look at this." I was wondering what he was doing. Well, he was drawing up stuff with Trey, <laughs> you know, in mind. And so we had just come from Justin Fields, and and we both agreed his workout was fantastic. But Kyle and I—that's when I said, "Man, he is—he's really all in on this," and the excitement he had. All right, well, welcome into the Chris Collinsworth Podcast featuring Richard Sherman and presented by our friends at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. I'm trying to get uh, Richard back in here to break some news about where he's going to play, but he can drive a hard bargain as well. So we'll find out what happens with him one day very soon. Uh, but we have a special show here today. We really do. The John Lynch, the general manager of the 49ers, got inducted uh, into the Hall of Fame this season, and we'll talk to him about all the craziness that was the draft season this year with Trey Lance and some of the moments he's had during his great Hall of Fame career. Uh, but before we get there, reminder to check out all the really great podcasts on the PFF Network, Steve and Sam on the big show, the PFF NFL Podcast. Plus, it's already fantasy season, believe it or not, in the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast with Ian Harditz has you covered. He just had DeAndre Swift on. That was tremendous. And it's never too early to get started making really good bets. The PFF forecast with George and Eric will make sure you never miss a bet and that you are the smartest football mind in any friend group. Those are my two mathematicians, and uh, believe me, they are the smartest guys. So go check them all out at the uh, PFF YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's go break down this draft and what happened with the great John Lynch. All right, well, joining me now is, uh, I don't know, kind of an old friend by this point in time. I feel like we've had a, a lot of uh, of our careers have passed in one way or another. But John Lynch joining the program now, currently the general manager of the San Francisco 49ers. And we've got a lot to talk about with your football team, but uh, I would be remiss if I did not start with congratulations on the Hall of Fame. That is Pretty incredible, and I could tell by the live shot when David Baker came and knocked on your door, because you've been passed a couple of times before, that it really did catch you off guard, didn't it? Well, I don't know at Florida, at the University of Florida, if a couple means uh, seven times. We never did major math over there. <laughs> um, let, you know, and I, I, I really wasn't mad at it, Chris, because it's that's something that, you know, um, I, I've told the story a lot. I never had that in my mindset. You know, I, re I really just loved playing the game. And when I first got there, I was a third round pick to Tampa, but I was just trying to get on the field really. And, uh, you know, I think I'm indebted to so many people, you know, my wife right at the top of that list, my parents. Um, but then I, I think of people within the game. Uh, I didn't, I didn't really become a full-time starter till year three at the end of that year. Um, you know, and I, I think of people like Herm Edwards. I, I made my first Pro Bowl, I think, in year five. And I remember coming back to that. And Herm was, I think, his uh, second year as being my coach, he and Tony Dungy. And, uh, 
you know, Herm came to me and I came back from Hawaii and I said, all right, I, I got to take that next step. You know, what, how, how do you, how do I get there? Help me out, Herm. And he goes, well, first of all, Lynchburg, uh, you know, that's, that's what he always called me. Say, we, we got to change your sights because you're worried about Pro Bowls. And I, I know your mind's in the right place about Super Bowls and all that. Um, but I'm talking individually. You got to you got to set your expectations higher. And I said, well, what do you mean? I just made my first Pro Bowl. What, what's next? Like, how do I get there? He goes, you got to start thinking about Canton. And it was the first time anybody had ever said that to me. And he said, see, that's the problem. You're, you're surprised. Like, and he goes, I'll never forget. He said, I believe it, but it doesn't matter if I believe it. You have to believe it. And I really think like that was a changer, a game changer for my career because it started to get me thinking, you know, like, yeah, he's right. I, you know, and, and if he thought it, I was like, well, dang, <laughs> you know, Herm doesn't just talk the talk. And he really did believe it. And it was up to me to start believing. And I did. And, and uh, I think my whole uh, demeanor towards the game, my expectations changed. And so I think of people like that, that I'd never be here without. And uh, it was it, it's been a it's been a. Uh, unbelievable deal and to do it during a covid year usually it was linda and i in a hotel room and you get the knock uh it was a good thing and you were thrilled for all those people but if you got a phone call it was you know and i got that phone call seven times and um i think as a defense mechanism started thinking oh this isn't going to change my life it really isn't you know if it happens it will be a nice thing and then when it did happen the fact it was a surprise it was at my house my parents my kids everybody was there just couldn't have come uh, at a better time. Well, it, it was well-deserved. I, I probably should have known a couple of different times that you were destined for the Hall of Fame. Uh, the first one, you came to a golf tournament of mine in Cincinnati, <laughs> Ohio. And we had a closest to the pin, got the use of a new car for two years or a year or whatever it was. So... As chance would have it, my sister-in-law, who desperately needed a car, somehow slopped the shot up there, and it <laughs> lands like five feet from the pin. Oh, my God. The place is going crazy. She can't breathe. My wife is out of her mind. My in-laws are so excited. They're all, you know, we're down to the last couple of people to shoot. I think you had just gotten there, but I wanted to make sure that everybody got to meet the celebrities or at least see them. I'm like, John, you know, you're getting out of the car. You still got your suitcase in your hand. I go, John, just come up here and take a swing. I'll give you a club. Just take a swing and I'll introduce you. It'll be a good way to start. You walk up there and knock it to about three feet away. Take my sister-in-law's car. I don't even uh, think you ever drove it a single time. You just cash it in at the local car dealership. <laughs> I have heard that story about John Lynch at every family gathering for the last 20 years. What do you have to say for yourself about stealing that car from my sister-in-law? Oh, I feel terrible. I, I remember the lady. I didn't know it was your sister-in-law <laughs> <laughs> until right now. So that makes me feel worse. But I, I'll never forget that because I had something going on, kids stuff. And so I took the red eye. And so I literally just arrived in Cincinnati, came right to the course. And uh, and there it was. I hadn't even hit a ball. And, you know, you had people there like real sticks like Johnny Bench that were talking about playing on the senior tour. And it was a tough shot. I think it was like 205 yards. And I got up there. I just didn't want to kill someone gallery like with people sticking their head out. And I'm going, folks, I just got off a plane and somehow 
Uh, and it was, I believe it was a Corvette. <laughs> I think um, it was too. You're unbelievable. I, I literally, yeah. to this day, I tell people that story all the time. I said, yeah. there is no way that he walked off there. I think in your, <laughs> in your regular shoes and knock it up. It was, it was great. The other time though, I will say, and if I've got this story wrong, correct me. But I think it was 91 or 92 that you guys played Notre Dame. And Bill Walsh is the coach, and Jerome Bettis is the running back for them, and you're the safety for Stanford. And it was a huge upset. It was a huge deal. I'm calling the game for NBC. Is my first year ever doing Notre Dame. And all I can remember were some of the collisions between Jerome Bettis and you and guys on your defense. It was one of the greatest football games I think I was I had ever seen that I'd really ever been a part of. Um, and of course, you know, so much of the story was Bill Walsh coming back in. And, you know, I, I had my boss at the time who, who chewed me out forever because he said, number 80, how could you not have known that this exact sequence that Bill Walsh used to win that game on offense from this pass to that pass that it was the same one that he used in 1981 when they <laughs> went on to the Super Bowl to go win that first championship. And I said, dude, you know why I don't remember that? Because I played in the first game that day. We played them in the Super Bowl, and I was drunk out of my mind whenever that sequence was happening. What are you talking about? But what do you remember about the game uh, and, and some of the hits with Jerome Bettis? Well, I, I remember a, a bunch of things. I, I remember we got down 16 to nothing. And, um, you know, I also remember that team was just loaded from Notre Dame. I believe in the first two rounds that year, they had eight guys taken. I mean, they were, it was Rick Meyer who was the second or third pick. It was Irv Smith. It was Jerome Bettis. It was, um, the DBs, Tommy Carter. I mean, they were just Jeff Burris, uh, by Bryant Young and, and Junior Bryant. They were, they were very, Demetrius DeBose, my teammate down in Tampa, got, you know, God bless him. He's, he's no longer with us, but it was just an unbelievable team. And I remember, you know, Coach Walsh had come back to Stanford out of retirement. They talked him in. Denny Green went to the Vikings and Bill had a big place. I had signed minor league baseball, thought that's what I was doing. I had switched to safety and played like half the snaps my junior year from a quarterback. And Bill called me up and said, Hey, uh, I know you got this great opportunity with the Marlins, but I'd love for you to come back. I think you are our best defensive player. And I remember summon, summoning all my courage because I'm talking to Bill Walsh and, and saying, you know, with all due respect, coach, I, I played half the snaps last year. Like, how do you, how are you saying I'm, I'm the best defensive player we have? And he goes, I'm just, I just watched the tape. And then in typical Bill Walsh fashion, he had gone and made a tape and he showed me making a play and then Ronnie Lott doing something very similar. And it was just like five plays. But when you have Bill Walsh showing you, uh, you kind of <laughs> believe it. And so, but, you know, Bill came back. And I think, you know, he said at the opening at his press conference, hey, this was my bliss coaching football at Stanford. There was no pressure. It's the most fun I've ever played. I think he was really doing it just to have a good time. And we started well that year. And that was the first time I saw the intensity of Bill Walsh. Because we used to say, I'm Keena Turner, who's with us here at the Niners, was on that staff. Um, and I'd say, God, Bill is so nice. And he goes, that's not a word I ever used with Bill Walsh. <laughs> I mean, this guy was a taskmaster. Um, but, you know, I think the story goes that Bill, before you had had that job of being the analyst on Notre Dame football games, 
And I think there was a little battle between he and Lou Holtz. I think Coach Holtz used to make him wait out in, <laughs> for production meetings. And I, I remember the intensity ratcheted up. And those practices that week, we went from the nice Bill Walsh to the perfectionist Bill Walsh. And he was going in there on a mission and we got to see his brilliance and, and we got down 16 to nothing. We stayed with it and we ended up running off 33 unanswered points and beat the number one team in the country that was just loaded. And it, it was, I don't know if I've ever had more fun playing football than that day. It just in a place where it feels like football is meant to be played. I played out of my mind. I think it's the best game I've ever played. And, and uh, it, that was a lot of fun. And that kind of, that's one of those points where I said, maybe I can do this, you know? So it was, it was, it was, was unbelievable because, you know, we'd been calling the Notre Dame games that year and, Jerome Bettis just ran over everybody, right? I mean, plus he was athletic enough to make people miss. So nobody either wanted a shot at him or could get a shot at him. But you squared him up a few times. And, I mean, can you remember some of the individual hits at all in your mind? Yeah, I remember. Well, the the uh, you know, the other thing in that game – in my whole football career, I had one concussion where I literally, like, I didn't remember anything. And in the first quarter of that game, Todd Norman was a guard on that team who I, I came to know later. He played in the league and he pulled, and it was like a lot of concussions, not a real hard hit, just a glancing blow to the outside of my head. And, and next thing you know, I woke up with the trainers over me and times were a little different. They took me to the sideline. I kind of got my bearings and um, I remember my dad, like, you know, he was like, somehow I'd got really good seats, was three seats behind saying, get your ass in the game. John. <laughs> so having to like steal the helmet from the cook, from the doctor. Um, and kind of once I came to, and I went back and, and, um, you know, played, played that way, but yes, there were a number of hard hits. I remember the one on Jerome, there was a toss to, to his left. Yeah. I came up and dislodged the, the, the ball. Reggie Brooks was a great back on that team. I hit him on a, on a kind of wheel route and just smoked him Lake Dawson. I think I broke his ribs in a, in a dig route over the middle. And um, it was just one of those games where things, everything was lining up. The game was played a little differently then. I, I don't think uh, two of those hits wouldn't have been allowed in today's football. The one on Jerome was clean. Um, Jerome was such a fantastic player, but you know, I think my advantage with Jerome is everybody was afraid of hitting him high. And so everyone dove at his ankles. And I think it was like the element of surprise. And he used to, it used to frustrate him because dang it, Lynch, here you come again. And I'd always hit him up here. And he just wasn't accustomed to people doing that to him, especially defensive backs. And even though he knew it was coming later, we, we ended up playing a lot of golf and Tahoe and stuff. And he goes, man, you, I knew it was coming, but everyone else hit me low and I, I could never adjust to that. And so that always served me well with, with the bus. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you were sort of like the karate kid. I, I, it, and correct me if I'm wrong. I talked to a lot of people, but I thought you told me one time about tackling that you had to sort of see past the guy. You had to hit through the guy. Like you hear karate guys talking about, it. you got to think about the other side of the board, not the side that you're hitting, something like that. Yeah, and that came from the greatest ever to do it in my mind, Ronnie Lott. Um, you know, the great thing about having DeWalsh as your coach, 
you know, it wasn't uncommon. My, my defensive back coach that year, Bill brought back a lot of players who had never coached and just wanted to give them an opportunity to coach with them. So Keena Turner was on that staff, Tom Homo, who is now the AD at BYU, but Tom was Ronnie's backup and one of Ronnie's best friends. So it wasn't uncommon to be looking over. And at one of our practices, there was Ronnie on, on the top of his Mercedes sitting there on the dirt road next to the Stanford fields. But Ronnie watched and I was really new and green at the safety position. So Homo coach Homo would bring Ronnie out on the field after practice. And I was getting tutored by Ronnie lot. And one of the early things, uh, conversations I remember saying is, look, you have a skill to hit people. I can, I can see that we can all see that, but now you got to become a tackler. And he goes the, you know, 99% of the, of, of people, even at the NFL, they hit to the target. Uh, there's a few of us of us and then he said it that way that hit through him. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he goes, for me, I visualize it. You know, there's, there's four of them, John, and they, they kind of go on the rise. They always talk about hitting on the rise. And I I've gotten to the point where I literally can envision that fourth guy and that's who I'm trying to hit. And so I, he said, start working on it. And it will become part of who you are. And, and I kept working on it. And that's something I always kept in my mind. And if I missed a tackle, I, all right, get back to hitting through them. And um, it, that, that was uh, one of the great tips. I was taught the same thing in baseball as a hitter. You want to hit through the ball. And it's just a great visualization technique that, that really helped you kind of envision doing that. Yeah, what people may not remember about you is that you were a higher draft choice in baseball than you were in football. You were picked in the second round by the Florida Marlins in baseball and the third round by Tampa Bay. And you also, I believe, have this right, were the first – you threw the first pitch. You were not a – you were a pitcher. You threw the first pitch in Marlins history at, a, at one of their minor league clubs – yeah, it was up in Erie, Pennsylvania. I was in their short season A ball. Uh, Charles Johnson, the catcher who went on to have a great career, uh, was was the first pick. I was the second pick, and they shipped me off to Erie, Pennsylvania. And we were the first uh, team to play in the Marlins organization. Wayne Heisinga was the owner. And we played this elementary school in Erie. And right field, I was a hard-throwing right-hander, and right field was about – 210. <laughs> so it wasn't a great place to pitch because you had this gym, elementary school gym, brick wall that was the fence. <laughs> and if you, I mean, there'd be a pop up and you're like, dang, that's, that's a home run, really? <laughs> and so, um, but it was great. They made that thing, uh, all the pomp and circumstance. Hyzinga brought a whole crew up from Florida. And the Hall of Fame, every time I threw a pitch, they'd come and grab my shirt. Then the next pitch, they'd grab my hat. Um, the only problem that day is the first seven were balls. And so it took a while to get the first strike. Um, but that, that was a, that was a lot of fun. That's, that's crazy. And so you said it earlier, your first two, three years in the league, you weren't starting, you were in and out of, you started some, but, but not all of them. Um, did you ever stop and go, Man, I should I should be going back to baseball. You know, if I'm not going to be starting here, if I can't make a career out of this, I should be pitching. Absolutely. Uh, year two, I remember having a lot of conversations. Uh, Lee Steinberg was my agent. Uh, Jeff Morad was the baseball arm. They were partners of of that agency, and I remember calling Lee, and Lee got Jeff on, and I said, "Talk to the Marlins." I like I 
I don't want to come back. I love football, but this is not happening. I'm on the worst team in football because <laughs> Tampa, your old coach, Sam, uh, yeah. God bless him, uh, was our coach. And, and things just hadn't taken off, and we were terrible. And I, I said, what's wrong with this picture? I'm on the worst team in football. I can't start. And I left a promising baseball career. Like, I don't care where my heart is. I, I have to make a business decision. And I never would have quit during the year. But in the offseason, you know, we had had discussions with the Marlins. So I was I was close to doing it. And, um, you know, again, people in your life, Hardy Nickerson was on that team and, and Martin Mayhew were. And they were kind of my mentors. And there was this weird situation where Sam was our head coach, but Floyd Peters was our defensive coordinator, but he was hired by the owner. And so Floyd got to say who played on defense, even though Sam was the head coach and Sam uh, listened to Bill Walsh, who said, you have to take this guy. Well, Floyd didn't want me. He wanted someone else. And so I think I kind of got caught in their battle and Hardy used to say to me, you know, it's going to take a while. Cause you're right. You can do a play completely right. Execute it perfectly. And Floyd, like everyone sees it, John, you can't do anything right in his eyes. But once you once you turn him, he's going to love you. And I said, Hardy, I, I can't do it, man. I'll do everything right. I'll play a game. I'll have 10 tackles and he'll find everything I did wrong. And, um, you know, it kind of went that way for about two years. Year three, they put me in there. They rotated me with an old teammate of years, Barney, Barney Bussey. Bussey we, used yeah. to, we used to rotate by quarter, actually. And then finally, I, I played good enough football. I had a game versus the Vikings and Warren Moon where I intercepted a couple balls. And they finally, Floyd finally threw his hands up and said, all right, it's your job. <laughs> and It took about two and a half years to win them over or three and a half years. But I finally did. And I did not realize that you were a quarterback. I don't know what I thought you were. I just assumed you were always – people don't go from playing quarterback to hitting like you hit. You know, so – and you had the arm. Obviously, you were the pitcher. Did – what happened at the quarterback position? Uh, nothing really. I mean, Denny Green, when I went in there my junior year, he uh, to to talk to him about – you know, because the defense – I did play defense in high school. And I played, you know, both quarterback and linebacker, actually. And uh, they would only let me, my senior year, they'd only let me play in big games, you know, that kind of thing, because I was a quarterback. Um, but, um, you know, the coaches at Stanford had seen me play, and they don't, the defensive coaches said, you got to come over here. Because I was, the day I walked on campus, I didn't redshirt, I was the number two quarterback. And when I went in there, um, after I thought I won the the starting job my my sophomore year, and I stayed away from baseball that year. I went and talked with our baseball coach Mark Marquez and said I have to try to win this job. It's open, and so I I didn't play baseball for that spring. I dedicated everything um, to spring ball, and not I thought I won the job. Um, a lot of our team thought they and they gave it to a senior uh, kid named Jason Columbus. Uh, I went in there. I just Baseball was going well. I knew I'd have a chance there. Uh, I threw hard, so I knew I was going to get drafted. So I said, let's just have fun with uh, let's just have fun with football. And I went in there and told Denny, I just want on the field. He tried to talk me out of it. And I said, Denny, they, you know, I either get on the field or I'm just going to focus on baseball. Like, I, I'm tired of sitting. I just want to play. And at first – it was linebacker. And then somehow we, I left the safety and, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history, but, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how that went. People don't know that the 
the biggest recruiting happens between the offensive staff and the defensive staff when they have a player like you on the field because we all in high school played both sides of the ball, right? And then the battle goes on within that one coaching staff on your own team as to who gets you. That's right. On that same team, we had the guy who ended up having a really good uh, NFL career, Darian Gordon, uh, who was a cornerback for Denver and won won those championships, a punt returner. Darian came in as a receiver. I was throwing balls to him, and then, then he became a corner. I became a safety. And you're right, though, that that especially a program that's struggling to find players like Stanford was at the time, Denny would would constantly be switching guys' positions. You go on, you play, obviously, phenomenal career, Hall of Fame career. Um, I, I, I was always curious about your team, though, that that transition from 2 with Tony Dungy. Um, a lot of people still will say, well, Tony Dungy built that team and John Gruden got the benefit of it. You know, you always hear that kind of stuff. But he did get fired. Um, Tony did. John comes in in his first year, wins the Super Bowl. Uh, with that team tell me about the difference because Tony Dungy to John Gruden always felt like the one of the bigger leaps <laughs> that I've ever been around yeah you talk about polar opposite um, you know Tony who who probably said one swear word in my eight years with him you know to John Gruden where every other word was was beeped out if if he was uh if he was being recorded um, you know it that was a tough time for us because Tony had really raised us uh, as as the the core of that team. Myself, Brooks, Sap, Rondé Barber, uh, that whole crew. We had been raised by Tony, and and uh, we played a different style of ball. Uh, we called it buck ball, where it was control the ball on offense and rely on a defense. And there, you know, there were a lot of games we we would lose nine seven, and Tony would come in, you know, after the game and say, "Offense, you did your job. You held on to the ball. Defense, we we got to be better." And you know that lasted for for a while. And at the end, you know, we we started to. You know, we we started not never splinter. We were always with Tony, but frustrations because like, man, we, we held him to nine points and we lost and it's our fault, you know, and I thought we kept it together forever. Um, but yet when Tony left, we were all heartbroken. We felt like we had let him down and uh, we had a nemesis in the playoffs. We just couldn't ever get over Philly. Mm-hmm. Philly kind of was that nemesis. And we went on the road and the, the game he got fired, we went up to Philly and lost to McNabb and Andy Reid and that crew. And Tony lost his job. And that was really difficult for us. But, uh, you know, credit to John, uh, you know, and I think both those things, it's, it's okay to, for both those things to be true. Tony did build that team along with Rich McKay. But John came in and to his credit did some things. Um, we were such a, uh, a draft and develop team. And one of the first things John did is come in and challenge the personnel office. Let's go supplement this with some free agents. And they weren't really big name guys, but you know, like Lomas Brown, who had been an offensive tackle in the league for 15 plus years, was a great glue guy on that team. Uh, you know, like Kerry Jenkins. These guys weren't big time names, but they were guys who ended up, Ken Dilger was a tight end. Guys that ended up, uh, Ricky Dudley, guys that ended up uh, playing big roles for us in that Super Bowl run that kind of got us over the hump. And and so I'm, I'm, you know, forever appreciative to both those coaches. And as different as they were in their personalities, a lot of their philosophies were very similar. And, and uh, you know, Tony, 
obviously the the grace he has, you know, he went on and, you know, it's funny. He became an offensive genius up in, uh, up in <laughs> Indy when you meet Peyton Manning, <laughs> I guess that happens, but it showed that he could adjust, you know, to whatever team he was coaching. And, and he did that in, in nice fashion. And it, it was great to see him have all that success up in Indy. You know, it really was because the offense did turn around. You guys in the first game of the playoffs that year, one, you know, whatever it was, 31 to six against San Francisco, come back and, uh, and beat the Eagles pretty handily, like 27 to 10. Then you blow them out in the Super Bowl. So a 12 and four season and, and really there was not or it didn't end up being a major challenge during that whole playoff run. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's one thing I learned, Chris, is as good a defense and we were pretty darn good. I mean, we, we had played at a high level uh, and Tony had just built, uh, I think, a bunch of tough minded people that, you know, our job was to hold them to less points, whatever that was. And we were, you know, we worked hard. We ran to the football like no other defense I've ever seen consistently. That was our hallmark. Yes, we had Hall of Fame players on each level, but the effort that we gave and if you practice that, it shows up on the field. So that was a fun group to be a part of. We challenged each other each and every day. Uh, the genius of it was in its simplicity. We didn't do a whole lot, but we did it well. Um, but what I learned is in come playoff time, you better be able to score points because you're going to play really good offenses. And, and uh, you know, um, that year we caught fire at the right time. And Brad Johnson played out of his mind. Guys like Joe Jervicious, Keenan McArdle. Mike Allstott, you know, they, they, they played great. Uh, that entire offense did and really carried us to uh, a Super Bowl. It was, um, you, you kind of go on with your, your big three of your guys, you know, Warren Sapp in particular. I, I think the first game I ever called in Tampa, Warren started calling me out in practice. I'm just standing on the sideline. And I mean, he's losing his mind. He's dog cussing me up one side and down the other. And you guys haven't even gotten out of calisthenics yet. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, is, is he talking to me? Like what? I, I couldn't even remember ever saying anything, but he, you know, then we obviously went on to be really good pals. We worked together on, on, uh, inside the NFL and, and I still talk to him probably once a month. You know, he's that kind of guy. Have you ever been around a human being like Warren Sapp in your entire life? He's one of a kind. He, he really <laughs> I'm is. telling um, you. From, from the first time I ever met him, I mean, I, I preceded he and Brooks. How about that draft class, by the way? He and Brooks in the first round. Amazing. Uh, that's that. That changed our franchise. And, and uh, kudos to Rich McKay, Jerry Angelo, all those guys who picked him. Um, but, uh, in the first time I'll never forget being in the old defensive back room We our facility was awful. You remember it. I mean, and we had, we had partitions like those folding accordion doors. Yeah. That's how we would separate the DB room from the linebacker. And we were back in the DB room and I, I was going to meet my coach in the off season and PR team had them in there getting ready for their first press conference. And I walk in and Sap stands up and he says, Brooks, that's that hard ass white guy, white boy that hits people, you know, that knocks people out or something like that. And I said, wow, I've never, never had an introduction like that. Um, and you know, for like the first year and a half, um, he and I weren't, weren't really like that. You know, we were kind of button heads because, you know, Warren would challenge you, man. And every he would, day he would make, he, he would, you know, try to, try to make funny in front of the whole group. And, 
you know, I was fun and all that, but come game time, I was, I was focused and we were losing and I'm where it all changed for us. This is, I'm almost embarrassed by this story because I lost my cool, but he had been on me for like a year and a half. And we, we went on the road and we were coming back. We had lost a game and I was tired of losing. I had been there longer than these guys and I was just tired of losing. And it was one of those deals, the NFL, you know, you lose, does it matter? Yeah, but it's not like college where everyone's supposed to sit there and just be like this the whole plane. But I was in that mode. I was just ticked off and tired of losing. And they were playing cards and yakking it up. And uh, someone was throwing cards at the back of my head. And I was trying to fall asleep. And every time I'd get a card in the back of my head and I turned around and I knew who it was, it was Warren. And he's, because I knew he was chuckling and he, you know, tension had been building up. And I, 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 you know, he did it again. And I, I turned around and I said, Warren, I know that's you. And if it happens one more time, I'm flying over this seat. I know you're bigger than me, but I'm telling you what, it's going down. And he waited five minutes and bam, he threw a card and I jumped over the seat. I cocked and Derek Brooks caught my arm and I'm, I end up like right in his face over the seat. And he goes, we're cool. And from that point forward, our relationship changed. And, you know, with a guy like that, I think sometimes you got to, you got to challenge back. And that was my moment with him. And he said, all right, we can ride together. And uh, ever since then, he's been one of my local, I, I promise you right now, Chris, and I think you know this about him. If I needed something, like if I had oh, something yeah. with my family and I said, Warren, I need you, he'd be on a plane without question right now. He's one of the most loyal people I know. It was, it's so funny. That story almost completely mirrors the beginning of my broadcast career with Nick Bonacani. <laughs> Nick Bonacani and Lynn Dawson had done inside the NFL forever by themselves. And they brought me in there. And I mean, week after week after week, it didn't matter what I did. It wasn't good enough and it just wasn't good enough. And, and he was critiquing. He didn't want me on the show. He made it very clear to everybody. He didn't want me on the show. And I fired off in one meeting. I won't say exactly what I said, <laughs> but I had, it's one of those moments where you have both feet on the ground and you, you know, you're going to have to get to your feet to start. You know, the, the fight's going to start for sure. And and it's same sort of deal. He just kind of looked up instead of standing up, and it was over. Like, I never had another issue. But it, it's, <laughs> it's amazing that you can get to that point where you would rather take an ass whooping yeah. Then, then hear it anymore. You know, I just, I, I literally couldn't take it anymore. And I figured, yeah. you know, they got makeup. Uh, they'll be able to patch me up before I have to go on the show here. It'll be all right. I sat there for five minutes saying, I know I'm taking an ass whooping, but I'm tired of this and I don't care. I'm like, I, I, I am, I am. That this, is hilarious. This ends now. <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, I swear I, I had uh, that exact, uh, I know the feel. <laughs> and then they turn into great friends. Exactly. You know, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, well, we'll be right back with John Lynch, but while you're listening, you may want to check out all the great content on PFF.com. Our guys are thinking about football 24-7, 365, believe me, just like I am too. And whether you need up-to-the-minute fantasy rankings or to see uh, where our NFL and college season simulations have your team, well, just go over to PFF.com. They have everything. You can unlock all the great content for 40 bucks an entire year. Don't be late to the party. Get it now. Go check out pff.com right now. You know, you your broadcasting career was really taken off. You were 
the number two guy forever and a day. You're doing playoff games. I, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn or not, but there. let's just say this. There were other networks that would have loved to have had you as part of their broadcast crew. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh. And, and did you ever think about that? I, your dad, I think, started a talk radio show back in San Diego or something like that. So it was in your blood a little bit. You know, did, would, did that tug at you at all when you made the decision to go be a GM? Yeah. So my dad was in radio and, um, you know, he, my dad was a 15th round pick of the Steelers in 1969. And so thus, you know, my interest in football, I, you know, I just wanted to be like my dad and, and, you know, he was like a taxi squad player who came in injured. Um, but in my mind, he was mean Joe green, you know, I was, I was just wanted to be like my dad. He was always my little league coach. And so I think that's why when I was young and everyone was saying, Hey, you should play baseball. Cause I was gifted in baseball. I could throw hard and that's quantifiable. And so from an early age, I was a guy that people, um, you know, said, Hey, that guy's going to make it football. You know, I was really good, but, um, not dominant. Like I was in baseball as a kid. Um, so I'm doing that. And I, then I move into, uh, you know, my pro career, I go into broadcasting and, you know, it all changed for me. I, I got a great advice from uh, Hardy Nickerson that during a bye week, just go out to Fox. They'll have you uh, during a bye week. And yeah, I know you want some time with your family, but go do their studio show. So I did. And I, there I met Ed Gorn and David Hill and all the, everyone who ran the NFL on Fox. And this was like in year nine. And they basically made me a job offer right there. They said, Hey man, we'd love to have you whenever you're going to retire. I ended up playing uh, 15 years then I took a year off, you know, the, the year I left football and, and I, I think they had me do two games as an analyst and uh, s- said, you know what, this gives me my football fix. I think I could have fun doing this and really had a great time at, uh, at the NFL on Fox, worked with people like uh, Dick Stockton, uh, Kevin Burkhart, um, and, and worked with some unbelievable people. You really get, you know, as you know, you get close with those people. You spend a lot of time with them. Um, you know, uh, Troy was always kind of, you know, the, the number one, and that was kind of a problem. He wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> so how do I get that? And like, you know, I talked to some of the people, we can say it now, uh, some of the people at NBC about possibly doing some Thursday night stuff. And that was flattering. But, you know, the, the, the GM stuff just kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I, I'd become, uh, when I got to Denver, John Elway was no longer playing, but we had a lot of parallels. I, he played football, baseball at Stanford. I did as well about 10 years later. We had a, uh, his high school football coach was my high school coach my senior year. He coached our offense. And so there were a lot of parallels. I had known him. And when I came to Denver, he just kind of called up and did uh, just welcomed me to town and said, hey, if I can help out your kids in school, you know, f- you know, get you in a country club, whatever I can do, just let, you know, don't don't hesitate to call on me. And so then I retire where I start playing a lot of golf with him and he takes the dive into running the Broncos. And each year he'd have me do projects for him. And, you know, the first year it was, hey, why don't you drop uh, reports on the safeties? And I did that. Like I remember in that class, it was Harrison Smith. And I really believed in Harrison Smith out of Notre Dame. And and that always stuck with John. Wow, he took he actually took this seriously. And, and then the next year it was, hey, let's give you a little more. The following year, he invited me in to do their offseason in person. I was living in Denver. So I came in with the Broncos and typical Elway fashion. I never f- forget coming into the draft room. And he had never told anyone that I was doing this. So 
they were used to seeing me around the facility, but draft draft meetings, people are pretty territorial and I'm sitting in there early. Like I always was. And John wasn't in there and everyone's kind of going, what are you doing in here? <laughs> Finally, John came in. Uh, I said, you didn't, I whispered over to him. You didn't tell anyone, did you? He goes, Nope. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I ended up doing that, but that kind of gave me that bug. And, uh, you know, I, ne- I never though, I, d- I didn't like focus on that. And then, I had done a lot of Kyle Shanahan's games and, you know, you do production meetings and you kind of um, you, you, you have a certain amount of respect for certain people and Kyle, you know, his offenses were always top 10, top five. And I, I became very um, enamored with what he was doing on the offensive side of the ball. Um, he and I would talk a lot and uh, he looked like he was getting the Niners job and I had just done a playoff game for them. And I called him just to say, congratulations, and I thought the way he was coaching was just outstanding and, and congrats. Cause it looks like you're going to get this Niners job. And he said something, he said, you know, I'm, I'm fired up. You know, they were going to play in the championship game. I'm just focused on this game, but I'm struggling cause I can't find someone I want to do this with. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, a general manager. I really want a great general manager. Who's got a similar vision as me. And out of blue, I said, well, what about me? <laughs> it just came up. I mean, I'd never thought about it. And he kind of laughed and he goes, you have a great life. Why would you ever do that? And, um, you know, about three days later, he called me back. He goes, man, I can't stop thinking about that. Would you consider doing that? And I said, well, Kyle, I kind of was joking, but he goes, I know, but would you, would you consider it? And I said, well, let me start thinking about it. Next thing you know, I'm on a flight up there to meet with Jed York, the owner, and and flew cross country to meet with Kyle, and I came out the general manager of the of the 49ers, and and so it happened very quick and organically, and it wasn't like this plan; it just kind of happened. I it, it happened to me one time, probably mostly because of PFF. The guy ended up not getting the job, <laughs> so but it was it, it was a really interesting think about it. Because you know how many hours go into just doing the broadcast. So you probably also had some idea going into it. Oh my gosh, you got to have to study the whole draft. You have to know the whole free agency world. You have to know you're going to be watching film. Then you've got the business stuff. You've got the community stuff. It, it is, it is, you're going to be working, you know, 14 hours a day for as long as you're, you're going to take this job. As opposed to, at least in broadcasting, you had an off-season, right? You had a little time to go hang with the kids. Your kids were great athletes. You were going to get a chance to watch them. What was the major sticking point as far as making that decision? What was the hardest hurdle? The hardest was, you know, my family sacrificed so much when I played. And, and after you're done, you feel like, you know what? I owe it to my wife. I owe it to my kids to be there all the time. And, uh, you know, I always struggled with that. But, you know, people along the way, Moose Johnston at, at Fox, one time I was telling him that early, you know, Moose, I'm having a good time with this broadcasting, but I'm gone so much. And, um, you know, I, I know that I think he even mentioned you as kind of an inspiration. He said, you can do both. You know, you can go and it might kill you. <laughs> you know, you can go do a production meeting, then fly home. You can do both. And he goes, I'll tell you something. My dad told me this was Daryl talking. And he said, you know, it's important. Your kids were too young when you were playing they've never seen you work, you know, and they know that they're enjoying all these, um, you know, luxuries in life, living in a nice place and a nice home, going to nice schools. 
but they never saw you work. They need to see you work. And so that always spoke to me. So, all right, maybe I need to do this, but still the broadcasting afforded you ability to kind of do both mm-hmm. work really hard doing football, but still be there. I drove to school. I went to game every games. Um, you know, I coached in a lot of their sports, uh, you know, that was, and so my kids were older at the time, but really just to make that leap, we were happy living in San Diego. And I remember, you know, my wife, you know, and I having some, cause this happened so quick, like this is a big move, you know, we like, do we want to do this to our family? And at the end, thank God for Linda and my kids, because they all came to me and said, dad, you have to do this, you know? And Linda said, John, you have to do this because she knew me. And she's like, your, your mind is churning now. And if you don't, you always regret it. And so she really talked me into doing it once. Cause I was, once I thought about it and it got real, I, I started pulling back. And the reason was my family. I didn't want to uproot them. And, and Linda gave me the permission, I guess, to go ahead and do it. And, um, you know, I'm very, very grateful for that because this has been a, it's been a lot of fun. It, it is a lot of work, more work than I ever anticipated. <laughs> no way I had a way of doing it and still, you know, being at Cherry Hills. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, that's John was unbelievably successful, but I, and I, I guess when I golfed with them, I kind of thought, Oh, okay, this is what he always does. He, he grinded as well. Um, but you know, I, I, I never knew the amount of work that this would be, but that that's also made it real fun. What didn't you know about the job for any of us who have ever thought, man, I'd really like to be a GM or a president or something in this league. What had you not really considered that is a big part of the job as you look back now? I think just the totality of it. Uh, I remember calling Elway because he was the guy I relied on. He's a good friend and he was doing the same thing and going, holy, man, you did not tell me everything that this job (laughs) encompassed. He said, Johnny, I tried to, you know, and he said they weren't lying when they called it general manager because you touch just about everything. We're football organizations. And yes, we have a team president who really does the business and you surround yourself with great team, but you're kind of responsible for everything football. And, you know, you realize quickly, even though you someone might run a department, if it doesn't work, it's your your butt that, that is going to get, you know, have the responsibility for it. So I think just the totality of it, um, you know, the fact that, you know, these things, uh, when, yeah. when you, even when you leave, it's always on and it never stops. Um, and that's part of what makes it great. But, you know, there are times when you get a break, which is the summer months. Man, you got to take it because otherwise this this thing will burn you out. And uh, but it is fun. I'll tell you, broadcasting so fun. Then you know you've you've gotten to you know the highest of the highs, and it was fun to ascend there. But you know I did miss a scoreboard. I missed you know um, having a having a win at the end of the game or having a loss and having to deal with that. And so this has kind of given me that. And I guess my thought was I can always, you know, I can always go back to the broadcast and, you know, and, and this is something that I had an opportunity to do something. I didn't want to look back the rest of my life and go, man, I should have done it. So it's been a lot of fun. It's so funny because you use the exact same words that I use. People ask me that about, you know, what I miss about playing. And I always the scoreboard thing is always the same thing, because I I think you I I don't know. I almost always, you almost assume you're going to win, right? So winning is satisfying and it's what you work for and it's what you do. But I can remember much more from my playing days 
about losses, about mistakes, about drop passes, fumbles. Like I, those are so ingrained in my mind that when I think of my career too many times, I think of all those things that went wrong, two lost Super Bowls, you know, all that kind of stuff as opposed to the good stuff. And I'm convinced that in order to get to the NFL, to get to that level, you had to have so many successes along the way, you started to just expect it. And then whenever those hit, you go, oh, it just brutalizes you. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I think uh, the, the old wide world of sports line captures yeah. it, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. But there's something about, I think if you're a competitor, even even the agony of defeat, man, you you miss that. You miss like being so invested in something with the team that, that, you know, when, when it doesn't go your way, you know, how are you going to respond and always having to show up and prove yourself um, things that are torturous, but when you, when you're away from it, you do miss that. And so being invested, the only hard part in this thing is like come game time. And, and um, you know, John had told me this Ozzy, you know, come game time. They're not a damn thing you can do. (laughs) So that is a helpless feeling. And that, I haven't gotten over that yet because you try to sit there and be calm. Um, the first year I remember, you know, my family calling me and said, would you ease up? Because I was sitting there during games so intense and pounding the table and the cameras were on you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've gotten better at least hiding it, but there, that, that is a helpless feeling. Yeah. Sometimes you hide in the back of the booth. We try and find you every once in yeah. a while. So <laughs> I, I still know what it is. It, you, you guys, you've, you've had a great run already. You and Kyle, um, I think well respected uh, with everything you've done. Unfortunately, after going to the Super Bowl the year before, you guys come back and just get bombarded, not only with COVID, but with the injury bug a season ago in such a devastating way. I, I, there aren't many teams. I take that back. There's usually a team or two every year that go through out of the 32 what you guys went through a, a season ago. But you have to feel a little bit like, hey, we're still sitting on that Super Bowl team. We still have Jimmy Garoppolo here. We've drafted this young quarterback in Trey Lance. There's no reason that we're not right back in that that game again. There's no doubt about it, um, but but you have to earn that. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's something we've been here going on five years now. And, uh, you know, what, what, what my vision for this place and I, and, and Kyle's right there with me is we want to become a consistent winner. One of those teams that's knocking on the door every year. And we kind of have had that. And, you know, it's been a steady ascent last year. We got, we got humbled, you know, um, I don't think we were too cocky. I j- we just got injured and we got decimated early on and that, Ultimately, though, it's just an excuse. So we're back working. Uh, I can't tell you how nice it is to, to have everybody back. We have nearly perfect attendance in our off-season program, which is a testament with everything going on with the Players Union and all that about off-season workouts. Our guys are here because they want to be here, and they're working really hard because I think everyone – was, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of disgusted with what happened. It was a weird year, uh, decimated by injuries early to some of our best players. And then our county and COVID, you know, we were on a bus going to the Rams, going to the airport to, to fly to L.A., and we find out that, you know, on that Monday, so this was a Saturday, 
we have to relocate somewhere. So in 48 hours, we got to find a new home. Thank, um, so thankful for Michael Bidwell and the Arizona Cardinals because they kind of extended their arms and said, hey, come down here. We've, we've got a facility, uh, a practice uh, field near their stadium, uh, a hotel that could house us. And so we moved down there. But it was a tough year, and uh, we're just happy to be back. And we do feel like we've got a, a really good squad, but we've got to go earn it, put it all together, and find a way to stay healthy and stay whole and, and, and go compete for this thing. Well, to have Boza back and Kittle back and Debo Samuel back, you know, some of the guys that you guys were, were really missing a season ago. Um, of course, the story of this offseason, the draft, uh, there were rumors flying around that you guys were going to do something at the quarterback position. You ultimately trade up from 12 to 3. Uh, you go get Trey Lance. But it was as bizarre a sequence of how we got there almost as anything I've ever seen. Everyone was convinced that you guys were trading up for Mac Jones. Somehow I've heard I've heard Kyle talk about it that hey, that rumor got going. Who am I to slow it down? You know, just <laughs> just let it go. But can you give us a little bit of the backstory now of what all was happening and the trade up and the decision and, you know, cause Jimmy Garoppolo took your team to a Super Bowl. He certainly is a guy that, that can play. Everybody loves him, right? He's one of the greatest human beings, one of the great guys that you'll ever meet. Just everybody loves the guy. So just talk about the totality and the process of what went into that. Well, I think the first um, kind of inflection point was us making the decision that we wanted to go pursue a quarterback. And that was really hard because we do, we love Jimmy. We love everything about him. Um, I, I, in, in particular, I, I think just personally, I, I respect, um, I think the greatest quality in this, in this game, uh, particularly at that position is when you have your teammates back and, and, um, I think Jimmy, since he's been here, he has never once, I've, I've seen him do so many interviews and he always puts it on his shoulders. He never throws anyone under the bus. Even if someone ran a route the wrong way, Jimmy takes ownership. And so, you know, for all Jimmy's faults, sometimes he's not the best texter. He doesn't get back to his teammates and all that. They see through it because ultimately they know that he has their back. He's, he's immensely talented. He's one of the great throwers. I don't think that gets talked of enough. I like what an elite thrower he is the twitch he has in his body as a thrower i mean we talk to these quarterback coaches and i mean it's he's he's up at the top in terms of ability um the the one thing has been he struggled to stay healthy you know and um so that that's not an easy decision he had our team he was he was five six minutes away from being the mvp of, of of our super bowl and instead things turned and that wasn't just jimmy it was it was our entire team and so that's really hard to make a decision that hey we're gonna we're gonna go um pursue another quarterback to be our guy uh the only way we knew how to do it was just to be up front with jimmy so right away we communicated with him we re- communicated with his representatives and that kind of started the process and um, at that point, we knew that we thought this was a uniquely good class of quarterbacks from, from all the way at the top with Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson uh, to Trey to uh, Fields at Ohio State to Mac Jones. I mean, it was a really good class. And so we felt like it was a good year um, to uh, 
you know, to invest in that. And so things kind of aligned and that was a tough decision, but one we made. And so then it started, okay, who, who is it going to be? And as we started to study guys, we said, well, hold on, there's a problem here. There's too many teams that need quarterbacks. And even though we're picking 12th, the ones we really like, uh, I don't think they're going to be there at 12. And so we started, um, and, you know, and we, we really had started focusing in on Trey, uh, myself and Kyle as, as the guy that, that we were very much interested in. And so we make that move, uh, from 12. We called teams, you know, we called, we didn't call Jacksonville at one. We talked to the Jets a little at two. We talked to, Miami at three, you know, I have a very good relationship with Chris Greer. That one showed promise right away. They were interested. Talked to Atlanta at four, Cincinnati at five. And we didn't want to go any lower than that. And, um, you know, we, we got the most traction with the Dolphins. And that was a big move. We knew it was going to be expensive and even more expensive because we said we don't want to wait. We want to do this now and beat whoever it is that also needs a quarterback to the punch. And uh, we paid a lot to do it. We played a premium um, to do it, but uh, we were convicted. It was the right thing to do. And then you're going through the ongoing process of, uh, you know, and as I said, uh, you know, early in, in the off season, you know, as we, we had kind of made that decision on Jimmy, we start, Kyle had been coaching a team. Well, now it was time. And he was down at his house in San Diego, um, you know, study and he's got a great system there. Technology is incredible these days, the systems you have. And, and so we throw all the quarterbacks at him, all the cutups, all the tapes. And he starts, and I'll, I'll never forget. It was like a Sunday night. I had misspoke earlier. I thought he was in Cabo. He's either in Cabo or in San Diego in the off season. Hmm. He was in San Diego near me, actually, we're 10 miles away, but him calling me and saying, Hey, John, this Trey Lance. And I was really excited because I was a fan of Trey's, but like, he's like, I can't stop watching it. Um, I think there's a natural rhythm and timing to his game as a passer. Um, and he talked about all these things. He didn't even talk about the running element to his game for 15 minutes. And then he says, and on top of it, have you seen this guy run the ball? And I said, yeah, I have. And the natural run instincts. And so I could tell he was excited and he had made a cut up and he sent it to me um, that night. And then I couldn't go to bed because I'm up studying his cut and the cut ups have his comments and all. And I'm reading the comments. I could tell I know Kyle well enough now. He, he was super excited. Now, after that, we kind of committed to look, you know, uh, we, we've got to see this process through. We have to look at all the options. We'd never seen Trey, myself, or Kyle in person. He only played really one year. And um, I never went out and watched him. Uh, we hadn't gone to a pro day or anything. So we said, we have to let this process and, and give the process its due. We have to hear from our whole scouting staff. But, you know, it's not like us because we're usually incredibly inclusive in terms of um, asking everyone's opinion and all that. We wanted that, but we usually, uh, you know, somehow tip off everyone on kind of what we're thinking. On this one, we felt it was really important. Like, no one can know what we're thinking because otherwise we're not going to get their true opinions. And we respect a lot of people in our business. So Kyle and I kind of said, this is our deal. And we were in on Trey early, but we like a guy like Mac Jones, there was all kinds of talk. Mac played out of his mind. I mean, his yeah. year last year, it was near flawless. And the way he played the position, and I know a lot of people had thoughts on, you know, that's way too high for a guy like that. Um, but you know, did we give it consideration? Sure. We gave all those guys, Justin Fields. Uh, there's so much to like about his game, but Trey from an early, early on in the process kind of was the favorite, but we wanted to hear from everyone. We did that. 
And, you know, when Kyle said that, far be it from us to stop the rumors, you know, and there were people close to Kyle that were saying it. And so I think everyone just assumed it was true. And it is pretty incredible, um, you know, in today's day and age. And I'm just I'm not passing judgment. I'm just making a comment. There's people have no problem just making stuff up, you know, because they want to be first. There used to be something called journalistic integrity where you check multiple sources and there's no consequence for being wrong these days. Well, you know, we took a shot. You know, it's kind of like in broadcast. I remember Ed Gorin used to say, you know, call, you know, take be bold, call a play. You know, if it doesn't happen, no one will ever remember. Well, that's how it is kind of like with breaking news. These <laughs> days, take a shot, And people were taking shots and we weren't going to stop it. And so this kind of momentum came and people are saying it was coming out of our building. Um, but, you know, it wasn't coming from us. And so we just kind of let it go, knowing where we were going. And then, you know, we got to to get more into the process. So it started with the film with Trey. And then, you know, we, I remember coming back from Ohio state and Justin Fields had had a fantastic workout, but on the way back, we're on, we're on the plane. Uh, Jed was nice enough to get us a plane and Kyle's on his iPad with that iPad pencil. And he's just grinding over there. And finally he said, look at this. I was wondering what he was doing. Well, he was drawing up stuff with Trey, you know, in mind. And so we had just come from Justin Fields and, and we both agreed his workout was fantastic, but Kyle and I, that's when I said, man, he is, he's really all in on this and the excitement he had, because he's doodling there, drawing up plays with Trey in, in mind. And so we had a good idea. Um, and then, you know, we kind of, I, I guess, you know, it got to the very end. I remember Jimmy Sexton calling me because he had both Trey and Mac Jones, his agency did, and about a week before saying, hey, can you help me at least um, manage the expectations of the families of the athletes? And I said, Jimmy, you know, I think I can do that, but we've gotten this far and, you know, there's something about on draft day, those guys hearing it from us. And so I, I can't commit to that. And then I said, but let's talk on draft day. And on draft day, I said, Jimmy, with all due respect to you, I'd, I'd love to make your job easier. Number one, I have a duty to our organization. I don't know what could go wrong by telling you, but I also kind of want the, um, I want that young man to get to experience hearing it for the first time from us. And so we were able to do that with Trey and it, it made it really cool. A million things come to mind for me. Um, Matt Ryan, of course, in Atlanta with Kyle and what he was able to do there going to the Super Bowl. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo back with you guys. But what he had never had as a head coach was the real ability to have that Colin Kaepernick kind of mobility. Like I always think of you guys, you've got those four, three running backs that are going outside zone. So you're stretching them as far as they can stretch one way. You go play action or bootleg to give you some options off of that throwback side when the linebackers are having to fly to try to beat the guards to the cutoff point and all that stuff. And you hit them in behind it. But what you never really had was that bootleg quarterback that could take it all the way around the backside and really make them cover 53 and a third you know and plus with the two quarterbacks that were out there the Trey Lance and the Justin Fields I go even if they leave a guy back there there's no sure bet that guy gets him on the ground if you want to run it so as great as this offense has been I never saw Mac Jones as the answer for you guys because I didn't think it was that big a difference 
with Garoppolo as opposed to if you did have that backside run element component to that offense, it could really make a difference for you guys. Is that a little bit of it or no? Yeah, I think it's it's very much of it. And and also, I think in Trey, we see upside, you know, because I think there's some things mechanically he can clean up in his throwing um, that will make him even better. But, but you know, it started, and, and I think that first conversation that I had with Kyle, Kyle deep into a Sunday night kind of illustrated that, that all he talked about was the passer and the natural rhythm and timing that he had. You know, the cool thing with Trey, they didn't throw it a whole lot at North Dakota State because they were a very good program that had their core beliefs, and that's to run the football. But when they did, they were pro concepts. You could see him work a progression and get one to two to three to four, and you could see his eyes doing it. And there were countless examples, even though he threw it 317 times um, in his college career. When he did, he did it very effectively. Some people talk about the accuracy. We feel like that can be cleaned up a little. But he, you know, he's he's a good good passer. And then, you know, I Kyle will be humble and, you know, I think like a huge part, and it's a huge part of why I wanted to work with Kyle. I had no idea what kind of leader he'd be because I'd never seen him in that capacity. I knew, I thought he was top echelon offensive mind and we would have a schematic advantage. Now I start working with Kyle and I see he's a tremendous leader. He's tremendous in front of the team. So that was an added bonus. But, you know, I think one thing with, PFF with all these um, with all these uh, technologies of of watching film, it is so easy for everyone in the league to copy each other. So it's hard to to gain schematic advantage because everyone's just watching everyone else. And uh, I think having a mobile quarterback again allows us hopefully to gain a little bit of a schematic advantage. Um, having that ability to implement, um, but again, it starts with the passing, and we think Trey's got can do that at a high level. And the coolest thing of this all is that, you know, when we went to Jed York and talked to him about the concept of moving from 12 to three, um, that also came with an ask, look, we want to do this, but there's another part to this ask. We'd like to keep Jimmy Garoppolo. And it, you know, it was all right. <laughs> um, you know, and we had gone, you know, my dad taught me long ago, don't go, don't go to your boss or, or coach just with a request. You better know the answer. Like, can we do this? And so Ed worked with Prague and the, the cap side and yeah, we could fit it in. We had the means to do that. And so, but we felt like that would give us the best chance to draft a, a young quarterback and play him when he was ready to play. We know we can win with Jimmy. We have, and we feel like Jimmy can even be better. And uh, this allows us to play Trey when Trey's ready to play. And I think it, uh, I think it makes for a real good situation. You know, maybe other than a Nick Bosa or you know George Kittle kind of guy, probably the most valuable guy on your team to the organization if he has a good year is Jimmy Garoppolo, because if Jimmy comes back this year and leads your team into the playoffs and has a good year, next year you go get probably first-round capital back in return for him. So there, there is a real opportunity for Garoppolo if he, if he does start and play and have a good year. Not only are you grooming Trey Lance, but you're upgrading what you might get in return for Jimmy Garoppolo. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's so true. And that, you know, that's a great lesson. You talk about lessons you learn in this league and it's, it's so easy to get caught up. You know, if you're Jimmy, you could get so caught up and these guys don't like me. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. And I appreciate so much the way he's handled this. Cause that's exactly what you were just saying, not about the value he could create, but I remember when I first, and I, I, you know, kind of went to him and talked about this concept. You know, the first thing he said, John, well, I have a chance to compete. I said, of course you will. You know, like we're, we're going to play the guy who gives us the best chance. And um, yeah, you'll have a chance to compete. Well, that's all he wanted. He's been so professional. I think it helps to be raised in New England where, you know, they uh, you just kind of taught you do your job and you and and uh, things take care of themselves. Jimmy very much has that perspective. And and uh, I think it served him well and served us well. And in this situation, he's handled it, you know, just about as well as you possibly could. Uh, it, there was another curveball thrown in the night before the draft. I think it was the whole Aaron Rodgers thing comes up, yeah. and okay, the MVP of the league's up for bidding potentially. Yeah, we're we're going to make a phone call here. We're gonna, yeah. we're going to check this out. Tell me how you heard that. Tell me what happened. What the phone yeah. call was like. Was it really as brief as we've heard? What was that whole thing? Yeah, we heard it like everyone else. I mean, there had been a lot of murmurs for a long time about a Aaron's not happy, and you know, like you know, we're we're human beings, so we watch Sports Center, we do those things, and like something's going on here. I happen to have the same agent as Aaron, you know, so you know, finally, I like I picked up the phone and I was like, "Hey, Dave, is there something?" Well, I don't know. You you guys ought to ought to call him, you know. And so I think this is very much a relationship business, and and uh, I know Brian Goodenkist. I have a great deal of respect for him. But Kyle Shanahan knows uh, Matt LaFleur a whole lot better. They've coached together. They've known each other for a long time. And so we were so convicted on Trey, but like, you know, you have to pick up the phone and just see, is this, is this? And so I said, Hey, Kyle, I think it's better if you call Matt. He did. And it was a very quick conversation. No chance. Uh, Shanahan, like it was like, don't, you know, and Kyle said, don't even waste your time calling Goody. And uh, I was kind of, um, I want to say this the right way. I was kind of excited because we were so excited about Trey and had such great conviction. Um, but I didn't want to not make that call and be the moron that never at least called. <laughs> so, but it was a very quick, uh, no chance. You've gotten a chance to see Trey a little bit now, um, throw the ball and in your camp. Um, I, I've also heard that he's like the intelligence level of the guy is was a significant factor as well. What have you learned about him since draft day? It just confirmed a lot of the things we had heard. We obviously did a lot of research. Um, you know the 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 Zoom um, circumstances, or excuse me, the COVID circumstances didn't allow you to do a ton in person or, or really anything other than the pro day. We got to be around him at his pro day, his second pro day. Um, and, uh, up in Fargo, um, that, that was a fun trip and we got to go see him work out. Uh, we got to meet his parents that day and his brother, which was cool. You know, I remember after the workout going, Kyle, let's go say hi to his folks. And, um, you know, we asked, uh, kind of the liaison at North Dakota state 
you know, could, could we meet his parents? We'd love to say hello. And we kind of went back behind the, it was an indoor stadium there and went up by where they were seated and just said hello and spent about 10 minutes talking with them. And you can see where he gets it from very grounded. Um, uh, the dad, actually, it, it was, we put two and two together that Kyle was a ball boy in 1992 for the San Francisco 49ers. His, his, his dad, Mike was obviously the offensive coordinator and Trey's dad, was a DB in camp with the Niners at the same time. And so we put that together there, had a good laugh about that. Um, just got to tell his parents how much we had enjoyed getting to know Trey, albeit over Zoom, how impressed we were. And uh, you could tell that, you know, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. They're wonderful, wonderful people. They've got um, – They've got their priorities in line, as mom talked a lot about, like with all due respect, guys, you know, Trey's not going to be defined by what he does on the field. It's about how he treats people. You know, that's the thing that stuck with me. And you can see Trey. Um, that's very important to him. We already see that here. Um, people, that, you know, that my my definition for leadership has always been. Do you make people around you better? And that's all anyone at North Dakota said about this guy, you know, obviously talent wise, but he's got an innate ability to bring the best out of people. Uh, his intelligence shines through. So there's just a lot to like about him. It's obviously got to all come together, but there is a ton to like, and that's only been confirmed in the short time he's he's been here. Well, partner, if he's half as talented as you are between baseball, academics, Stanford, quarterback, Bill Walsh, this is some life you've uh, led, and it's all leading to the Pro Football Hall of Fame this year. I couldn't be more proud of you and really appreciate the time. You guys have done a great job out there. and. Can't wait to see you guys this year. Hopefully, I get to do the broadcast this year without my mask on. San Francisco is the only place (laughs) where you have to wear a mask to do the broadcast. I want you to think about that. Try and do that sometime. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) I want to know, Chris, did did, did our – or your your partner, did he get nervous or something? Did he he back out on this interview? Sherm? Oh, you know what? (laughs) We're we're in – nobody will understand this better than you do. I'm in contract negotiations with him, and I may send him to you to try and close the deal. I'm having a little trouble here. Yeah, there's 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 Sherm, and then we always joke, Kyle and I. There's Agent Sherm, and Agent Sherm's a different dude. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's been fantastic. He's been a great guy. He really yeah. has been. And may, who knows? Sometimes it works out. He could be right back right. there in San Francisco before right. you ever know it. Uh, this was fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank for you, me John. Up. It was great. Okay. And special thanks to John Lynch for a fantastic show. I apologize to him. Usually I never go past about 35 or 40 minutes. Their time is valuable, but uh, <laughs> just too much good stuff. I couldn't stop. Uh, next week, the uh, hits keep on coming. We have a head coach that might have the toughest job in all of sports and maybe the best offense in all of football. You can figure that out for yourself. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get this episode as soon as it drops. We will see you all next week.